Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Welcome everyone. This week's guest, Alan Stevens. G'day Alan, how are you going? Pretty good, thanks Ian. How are you? Really good. Um, we were just having a laugh before we came on about uh, about the uh, work that you do and how you gave me a program to do, which I uh, still haven't got around to completing, but we'll come back to that. We'll do full, go full circle and because you've got a really cool offer for people at the end to, to, um, to share with um, if they feel called. So that's awesome. Uh, I love any form of uh, new way of communicating and looking at different things. Uh, what I also love is that you said you've been interviewed 41 times already this year, probably a hundred in the last 12 months. Mm. And yet I still got a real sense of excitement of you talking about this sort of stuff. So I'm really, uh, yeah. really pumped for this. Mm. What is a profiling and communication specialist, Alan? Tell me more about what you do. Well, the two things there, profiling, being able to read somebody and then knowing how to communicate with them. So I profile people for the purpose of being able to build stronger communications. It's all about, well, if you're talking to people, but you're talking a different language, they're not going to understand you. If you talk in a way that's different to the way that they need to be uh, spoken to, that's also going to make it difficult for them to understand you. So what I do is I help you to learn how to tune your transmitter into the other person's receiver. Like we listen to a radio, we tune our, tune our, our receiver into the radio station's transmitter because all those receivers, the common point is the transmitter. But when you're communicating with somebody one-on-one -on -one or even in a group, your transmitter has to be retuned to each of those people you're talking to. So being able to read somebody by understanding their personalities, their um, emotions and everything else, you're able to speak to them in the way that they need to be spoken to. That's the basis of it. Awesome. Now, I know we've already had this conversation, but for the benefit of those watching and listening, I would love you to uh, profile me and then tell the audience about like what you get from me around that, which is uh, a place of vulnerability for me. But I think it's the best, way to, the best way to demonstrate it. I remember that first conversation when you were telling me all the things that you'd already worked out about me. I'm like, damn it. So, yeah, for the audience, let's do that. Right, yeah. Well, first of all, just for everybody who's listening, what I'm looking at is not so much the movements or anything else. The first thing I'm noticing is your facial features. And how that works is you lift weights, you're going to build muscles up. We know do bicep uh, curls, you're going to build your biceps. Whatever mu uh, muscles you uh, exercise, you're going to build, and you'll build a different shape in your body depending on what you're doing. So then you turn around and you go, rightio, well, 
everything we feel inside, we express outwardly. This is why body language and the uh, expressions tell us what's going on. So if somebody's feeling angry outside, they're going to show it on their face. They're going to show it in the rigidity of their body. So you put those two things together, you think in a certain way over and over again, you're going to build ridges and crevices on your face by using the same expression time and time again. So your face becomes a roadmap of your personality. It's a history of how you like to think and process. Yeah. So that's where I start. You know, the, the sexy stuff like lie detection and things like that, I use that more as a truth seeker than as a lie detector. So I leave that towards the end. That gives me the feedback. Have I read you right? Is there something emotionally going on? And yes, are you telling me the truth? But as far as the face goes, if I've got your photograph, I've got your personality, which means before I even come and talk to you, LinkedIn profiles, websites, Facebook pages, wherever I can see your face, I know whether I know your personality. And if I look at, say, your, the profile you've written about yourself, I know whether you can do what you said you do, you, you could do or not. Mm. So a really powerful skill to have to navigate your own world, right? That's it. So one of the things that I noticed, if I was meeting you for the first time, I know that you know, in physical life, real life, I know that you're going to come up and stand close to people when you meet them for the first time. You're quite comfortable doing that. Yeah. I know that you find the errors in uh, documents very quickly as well. Maybe sometimes when you write your own stuff, you may miss the, the, the errors, but you come back five minutes later and look at it and they're, they're jumping off the page at you going, oh, geez, how did I miss all that? <laughs> You're analytical. You like to analyze things before you um, uh, m uh, make a decision. But once you've made that decision, it's pretty much a case of get out of the way and let me get it done. Yep. I know that you're going to be fairly concise when you're talking to people. You're not going to waffle on with, you know, very flowery language or sentences, embellished sentences. You're going to be fairly straight to the point. I know there's a bit of a dry sense of humour there as well, so we can have a, a light-hearted conversation. You like you get your teeth into um, meaty conversations, so you like to debate on different things. So there is a tendency of getting people drawn into a, a, a conversation, a philosophical conversation, bait them, and that's when your dry sense of humour comes in. Have a lot of fun doing that. But oh, some dear. people who have got the opposite trait, about, they're more fussy about things and they can get their nose out of joint. And that's when mm. you go, why are you getting upset? I know that you're self-reliant, happy to work on your own. That's and I know when you learn something new for the first time, let me have a look at it. You're going to spend some time with You're going to make sure you got it right before you go and tell everybody how it works. So you build your confidence on things. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, uh, just a few traits. There's still some more that I can see there as well. Well, the, the one that you mentioned there, like, yeah, that's like I'll get in a debate for the sake of getting into a debate. I like to, I like to help people see both sides, not necessarily taking one side or the other, but just opening people up to different things. And that sort of played out a little bit on social media this week. So there might be some people watching that will get an, an understanding and appreciation of the, the method in the madness as well. I love it. Keep going, Alan. Yeah. Well, if I was uh, drawing a caricature of you, I'd probably draw a picture of you with a fishing line, reeling them in. <laughs> come on, come on. Oh, very good. Oh. You've said too much, but keep going. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> but I also know that it's, you know, when it comes, some people are very structured. They need everything in a structured order. Everything's, it's like painting by numbers. You know, one, two, three, four. Don't jump to seven or eight without going through the other numbers beforehand. Whereas you're more objective. You can pull ideas around and build concepts. So I could tell you part of a story and you would be able to go, oh, there's a bit there, and you apply something else from somewhere else. Yep. It's a great skill. It's, it's, it's actually also a trait of somebody who uh, 
would uh, drive rally cars or racing cars. Somebody has to think very quickly on the moment, make a quick decision and change. Mm, interesting. It's, the problem, though, with that is if you're talking to somebody who's very structured, while you're bouncing around, they're not getting it because mm. you're, you, know, you miss that uh, flow. Biggest issue at school, for instance, is a lot of teachers have that particular trait and a lot of the children are sequential thinkers. And if the teacher doesn't recognise that the child has missed a little bit, and why don't you ask any child, do you got that? I guarantee they're all going to go, yeah. And they're probably going, no, I haven't got it. But they're going, yes, I've got it. And the teacher moves on. Now we've got a child who's having struggles at school and unhappy that's, and um, now being disruptive. That's with one of my children. That's exactly right. One, one we must think the same because it makes sense. The other one's like, like I'm like so obvious, but they're like I'm just not getting it. So we've got an arrangement now. My wife will help one with with their homework, and I'll help the other because we we think the same way. So that's brilliant. I love that. Keep going. See, once you you've got that in that conversation by presenting it in the way in which they need to understand it, it takes the pressure off you. Your life becomes so much easier because yeah. they get it faster and they're happier as well. Yeah, yeah, love it. So, but I also know that. With some people, like I know that you're, some people have, uh, well, like you say, have cred credulity. They take things on face value. You tell them something and they go, oh, yeah, they've got that. Somebody yep. else comes along, to, gives them another idea. Oh, that, that's the new flavour of the, uh, the month. In your case, you're more sceptical. You're going to be asking questions to find out why. So I know yep. if I was selling to you, I'd be going, okay, first of all, Ian, there's a lot of information here. In my case, if I'm saying a big picture person, just want the overview, I'd be saying to you, look, there's a lot of information here, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the overview first of all so I don't forget anything. Once we've got it all on the table, then we can go in and you can ask all the questions you like and, you know, and I would let you ask every question you could come up with because once you've got past, you've got enough information to make your decision, that's number one. Number yep. two is once you've asked all the questions that you need to ask, your scepticism is gone you now understand how it all works and everything else. When somebody says to me, Alan, I'm a skeptic, I go, great, but what type? Open mind or closed mind? If they go, what do you mean? I go, well, closed mind means you're, you're looking for reasons for why something won't work. So if that's mm -hmm. the case, end of conversation. If yep. you're a skeptic with an open mind who wants to understand what, how it works, to really get a, their head, your head around it, I will sit there forever and a day while you ask every last question you can possibly come up with. Because once you come up with it, you've got all the, the information you need, you're the strongest advocate I could have because no one's going to change your mind because you're being through it all, you understand it, and you go, Alan knows his stuff so everybody else can go and, you know, go elsewhere. Yeah, it's uh, because, experience, right? Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. And so that's a great trait for, um, for me to have. If somebody says they're a sceptic, I go, great. But I also know when you're working on something and you've focused on it, I wouldn't come over to you and tap you on the shoulder and say, Ian, I need your hand. Come over here and give me a help, uh, help right now. I'd be saying to you, Ian, I can see what you're doing is fairly important. You seem to be very busy. How much time do you need to uh, leave that to uh, – or how much time do you need to work on to leave that and then be able to come and help me? Would five or ten minutes be okay? If I, mm. you said ten, I'm coming back in 11 or, 11 or 12. And I'm going to tell you I've given you extra time. Why? Because I thought that it looked really important and, it, you know, you were really focused on it. But if you come over and help me now, we'll be able to get my problem out of the way faster and you'll be able to get back to your problem and be able to fix that up sooner as well. If I just tapped you on the shoulder and told you you had to come over, 
physically you'd be over there, yeah, but emotionally <laughs> still that might on the other problem. Oh, nailed it. Um, I welcome the distraction, but it, yeah, oh man, that's good. Oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you're adventurous. You're willing to try new things. So that, along with the scepticism, I know that the more likely to be asking questions to understand how something works because there's a bit of an adventurous trait there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Just turn quickly sideways. Look to your shoulder and then back again. Okay. Forward balance. You like to look at not so much being uh, recognised for what you've done in the past, but what are you doing today? What are you doing for tomorrow? What are the things you're working towards? So your, your focus is moving towards the future. Yep. You're not so much, uh, some people are very impulsive. They'll rush into things really quickly and others will uh, just take forever and you go, no, we're not going to try that. And then you've got others, and that's one trait, that's whether a person's impulsive or not. But you've also got the person who's tenacious or not tenacious. So somebody who, somebody who's tenacious will go well beyond where other people think they should have given up. They've been working on something and they won't let it go. It's like getting your teeth into a, a piece of meat and you just can't let go of it. Whereas somebody who has a low tenacity, they always give up five minutes before the miracle, so to speak. Yeah, right. Um, whereas uh, just quickly look sideways again for me and then back again. Yeah, you're middle of the road. Hmm. So as far as... Yep. Yeah, so you'll stick with it fairly, fairly well all the way through. There's a lot of other traits that... If I've got a clearer photo, because as everyone's seeing on the screen at the moment, when we're looking at each other, it's probably in old measurement, lucky to be an inch and a half high, your whole face. Yeah, yeah. 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 But what I also look at is the the length of the body, your upper body compared to the, the length of your legs. So mm. if somebody's got short legs, that tells me one thing. If they've got long legs like me, if I've got long arms and long legs uh, and a short upper body, then uh, that tells me something about them as well. And there's a couple in the, in the hand as well, as far as the, the, not so much the lines, but the structure, the length of the fingers and other things. That will tell me information as well. Fascinating. Um, wow. Like we've had a couple of chats and I did not appreciate the depth of this. Uh, amazing. Um, there's a couple of things. Like the one, one you said really early on, you said uh, about... Um, tend to be concise now sometimes i can tend to be concise but there are other times where i can like use more words than than i need to so what what could be a contributing factor to that is that me when i'm not operating at my most natural no more to the point that when you're working on something you're really keen about yeah that's when you're going to talk more Right. But I know if you're just, say, working with a client and helping them through understanding their situation, et cetera, you're not going to waffle on with big flowery language. You're just going to go bang, bang, bang. Yeah. Is the point because you're trying to get your message across. <laughs> there might be and, a couple of clients listening now who can appreciate being on the other end of that where I've like gone, okay, come on, let's let's get yeah. going forward. That's cool. Well, there's probably a few of them there who have said, you know, You've talked to me so much because with the analytical trait, what we do is we actually get the information across to somebody really quickly. If they're just a big picture view, they just want the overview. Like they're on a mountain peak, there's another mountain peak, and you tell them we've got to go from one mountain peak to the other. They want to know where the bridge is. Yeah. Whereas somebody who's analytical, oh, no, go down the mountain, get as much information <laughs> as we can across the valley, get more, start going up the other side, and quite often, do we even want to go up there? We've made our decision on that as well. Yeah. And so when you're giving information to somebody, you'll give it to them in the way that you want to, to get it. 
as I said, this is where we have to change our transmitter frequency to match their receiver. So instead, you'll actually give you'll you'll get the sale and keep talking and walk your way out through the back door as well. So you've come in the front door, you've got the sale, and with somebody like that, they will either switch off and just start nodding, yes, I've got you, or they'll try and finish your sentences. And so if you're aware of who they are, if I'm talking to somebody who's big picture, yeah. when I say big picture, by the way, everybody's big picture. We can see concepts and see how we bring them together. But I'm talking about the least amount of information. They just want, if it's a rainbow, they just want the top layer. Whereas analytical, they want all the layers and they want to keep looking at all the layers. As you go across the top layer, explaining a little bit more, they want to know the depth of it as well. Mm. And so if you're so, talking to an analytical, sorry, analytical talking to a big picture person, what you would say to them is, look, there's a lot of information here, but what I'm going to do is give you the overview and they go, thank God for that. And I'm going to then let you ask the questions that you want to ask. And they go, oh, you're not going to talk at me. You're going to let me talk. And then give them the over. And then say, by the way, if there's something there that I think you need to know, but you um, haven't asked, is it all right if I tell you that then? So you're getting a verbal contract agreement with them. Yeah, you give yeah. them the overview. You go, okay, what questions do you ask? You've got, they ask those questions. And then you go, okay, remember before I mentioned there might be something there you didn't ask that you need to know? That boring stuff, we're there now. You yeah, usually yeah. get a bit of a giggle from them and <laughs> you give them that information. Yeah, so it's it's a lot of the things that we're taught in sales, in uh, coaching, in leadership. It's just been I apply it from a place of that's specific for the individual. So, so I do that. I come at that in a different way, more around like, and you won't be surprised to hear this, Alan. Like the sense of the feeling and the language that they use, seeing they're my greatest strengths. That's also how I identify the patterns in people, and and I'll identify a big picture person, like almost intuitively now mm. because of the language they're looking. That's mm. very visual language or uh, whatever else. So I think it's like applying this to that. It's actually more depth yeah. to to what. Mm. I guess a lot of people already already know. A lot of people have done that sort of personality work. Uh, fascinating. So if someone's watching now and they're listening to all of this and maybe they're going, hmm, I'm not sure if I want to hear those things about myself or, or whatever they're thinking, <laughs> but, but it's like how could they apply this? Let's take sales out of it. How can they apply this just to their everyday life? Yeah, well, I know everybody's interested in sales and everything else, but the thing is, if you don't have a relationship with somebody, you don't have a business, you don't have a, you don't have a, you know, a partner, you don't have, you know, your kids grow up completely separated from you as well. Relationships are the foundation of everything we do in life. We hear all the time that people only do business with those that they know, like, and trust. Yeah. Well, that's like just saying no, like, and trust. It's like three cars jammed up behind each other. But what people don't realise is for cars to travel effectively, there's got to be a gap between them. So you have the know, get to know somebody. There's a bit of time in doing that. Then you get to like them. Then there's a bit of time to actually get to the point where you can then build trust. Yep. The more you're able to read somebody, the, fast, the, the, the more you condense that time between the know, like and trust. So you can do it faster. But then what, what we do in sales, we don't sell a product or a service. We sell ourselves. And yes. I know that a lot of people say, oh, no, that's not true. I'm selling a product. Talking to a, um, a financial planner the other week and I said, well, I said, if you leave the company you're working with and go to another company, what happens to all the clients that you had? 
He said, oh, most of them will follow me. I go, so they didn't buy your product or service, they bought you. Yeah. So by building that relationship, you really connect with somebody. And once you've really connected with them, they will then buy from you, but you didn't have to sell to them. That's the difference. Yes. People are out there trying to sell all the time. They're getting trying to get the ROI, the return on investment. When you build a relationship, you get an ROR, a return on relationships, which always leads on to the return on investment. The Love greatest it. return on investment is actually the relationship itself. So whether it be raising your children, being able to connect with them, because we know that kids, when they're getting to the teenage years, start to separate from their parents. They start to get more towards their peer groups and things like that. They're the ones that are having problems. We know that girls between the age of 11 and 15 in Australia, more than 5%, sorry, one, more than, yeah, more than 5% will actually attempt suicide. We know that boys between the age of 15 and 19 are the most successful at committing suicide for all our youth. And they're completely disconnected. Now, you imagine if the parent had a better connection with them when they were younger, the child is more likely because dad and mum understand them and more likely to come and talk to them about their problems. So they're not going to get, you know, if they're being bullied or whatever, doesn't have the impact. And yeah. so the child then grows up happier. But if, if we understand the child, we know the hobbies and sports that will suit them. We then know as they're going through school, so we know what it's going to be like before they get to school. When they do go to school, we know what subjects or what careers will suit their personality because our personality with things we're good at is where our strengths are and we yep. apply that to the work we want to do and we're going to be happier in our work so we can guide them into the right careers and the right the right studies and what university or degree or TAFE degree course should they do from there if they then go into the workplace they're more than likely to use their degree finish it first of all then use it and yep. then staying in that uh, uh, industry may change companies but usually because of a promotion not yeah. changing their, their actual careers, happier at work, more productive, company makes more money, then they're, um, they're happier in, in themselves. And when, this also helps them find the, the partner that will match their personalities. Once they've got the partner, know how to keep that partner because we get the upside of the traits exhort, excite us, but after a period of time we get so used to the upside, our partner doesn't change, We just what we do is our awareness of them changes. We now realise and we recognise more of their downside and we go, they've changed and there's a problem. Well, yeah. know how to talk to them and when you talk to them in the right way, you can keep the romance in your, your marriage and your partnership a lot longer. Yep. And if you're happier, there less domestic violence and other things like that. And if the, the parents are happy, then the kids are happy. So As I was the, saying, this works everywhere. It's not just sales. Sales yeah. is a result, that's all. Well, we're, every moment of every day is a sale. We're either trying to convince ourselves or convince yeah. someone else, right? Yeah. So so actually being able to understand each other, it, it just flows into all parts of life. Mm. And so being able to come from a place of what well, that's the, the message we got told often when, when we were younger was um, uh, treat someone how you want to be treated. And it's like, well, that's kind of only partly true because mm. we need to treat them how they need to be treated. So it really exactly plays in right. yeah, plays in nicely to to what I've learned about the the six human needs and making sure that you are hmm. meeting whatever their primary need is. And when you can do that, then everything becomes much easier hmm. because someone who's having their needs met is so much more open to be able to have a conversation or to to be more open to looking at different hmm. possibilities, right? Yeah. So the 
treat somebody as uh, you would have them treat you came from the point of where we didn't know how to read them. So if we treat them the way that we want to be treated, we want to be respected and all this. So it put us in the right path. But yep. go to the next level, as you said, treat them in the way in which they want to be treated. And the only yep. way you can do that is when you can read them. Yeah. And that's 100%. when you take it to a completely new level. Yeah. So I love what you said there, like particularly about the, the relationships, like the whole way through. Oh, well, so much level to it. Let's start here. Often as parents, we want the best for our children. And if we're coming from a place of our own frustration, sometimes we may push them in an area that what we think is right for them, but maybe just an underlying part of what we want because of something we missed out, right? That's a real common mm. problem. But I loved how you described that whole flow. They're happier at school because they know how to learn in their way. They are able to then map out their path for the future mm. in, in so much more effortless way because they know what feels right for them, what looks right for them, the, the, for them to get the best results, and then choosing the right career path based on their personality so that they're successful, they're more engaged, they're happier in their work, and, of course, they're going to be more successful when all of those things are in place. So it's actually a lifetime skill to learn this. Exactly. And yeah. so what you're offering at the end, and I think this is right, the program you're going to offer is that is around the, the for helping to parents to read their children, yeah? Well, it's a free course that will teach them how to understand how to read the, um, uh, the traits, how, do you, how, to re how this works, and read it a couple of traits in anybody how to build rapport, et cetera. From there, that's a free course that I give away. I'll also, I've got one for parents as well. If they come to me through and mention that they've been with you, I'll give them a, a code where they can get that at half price. Awesome. That, okay. We'll double on that. Yeah. But awesome. just back on what you said about the kids, if I could, first of all, because yeah. this is a great point, as you said, that nurturing all the way through. In the explanation, what you were showing there was that as parents, we are not carpenters, we are not sculptors. We're not designed to turn our kids into something that we think they should be because when we do that, yep. this is why the kids end up unhappy and why they disconnect from us. We are gardeners. Our job is to nurture them, to help them become the best version of themselves. Now, I know there's a lot of parents, you know, helicopter parents and everything else who protect their kids all the time. Well, that robs the child from – our job is to keep them safe. After that – is to set the environment up so that they can learn from their experiences. They've got to have a few knockbacks and things like that to be able to have the resilience of when they go into future life. Otherwise, they're always going to need their parents. Now, if that's why the parent's doing it, because they don't want to lose their child, well, the thing is, kids grow up. And one of the greatest things, like I've got three sons and I've got six grandkids. The greatest thing that I ever felt from my sons as I was growing up is they all came into men of their own right, they're all different to each other. Yep. And in that, they've also uh, become the leaders of their families. And so I can look at them and say, I've got three sons I love and respect, and I'm really proud of, of who the type of men they've become. Now, I couldn't have done that if I'd been trying to be the carpenter or the uh, sculptor, telling them what to do all the way through and protecting them and everything else. Yeah, I love that. Gardener, give them a space to grow, hmm. help them to grow by nurturing and so on. But not sculpt sculpting or, or or building them in a way that's mm. that's not flexible. Man, that's magic. Mm. I love that analogy, yeah. Alan. Um, and as a gardener, don't just keep pulling them out of the ground to see how they're growing either. Just <laughs> leave them alone and let them grow. Yeah, help them with help them with the weeds, perhaps. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's part of the nurturing. You you're keeping the weeds away from them. They're showing them how to deal with the weeds themselves as well. This yeah. is all about the resilience. You're doing that with your kids. Think about the bond that you have with them because. Kids need boundaries. 
but you not barriers, but boundaries that guide them. And we put the boundaries around them. So we know where to guide them, but they then seek their own path. Yeah. And with that, they're always going to respect us. How many times do your kids push you to the edge, but don't push you over the edge? That's one reason they're actually reading you. But secondly, kids aren't trying to break us. They're trying to see if we can hold. Yeah. So they will test us. Yeah, they, they, they want to know where the boundary is. That's it. Because <laughs> then they have security with boundaries. Yes, love it. And uh, like probably another pattern of recent parenting is to, to, to be the, the best friend instead of actually, mm. no, they, they want a parent and, uh, mm. and they mm. want you to be human. And, and that's really interesting. They want to see that you will hold uh, because it gives them that security. Uh, magic. That. As I told my boys when they grew up, I said, forget about me be, being your friend. I'm your dad and that's the most important job I've got. Yeah. So, Alan, I, this passion for this side of what you do really oozes out of you and I know how special I felt those tingles when you talked about that role that you had as a dad. I also know for you, like, you became a single dad mm-hmm. and – and then there's also, so maybe let's just start there. Like, how did you navigate that as a single dad? But this is before you knew this sort of material, oh, right? yeah, long before I knew these skills. Yeah. Okay. I was, um, I'd heard a lot of things like, you know, bringing boys into manhood, heard little stories here and there, talking to different people. But I was pretty much, when I started, I was definitely a boat without a rudder. You know, here I was, three boys, four, 11 and 12. But uh, one of the things that I did realise very quickly was that, you know, not to bag their mother at the same time to try and build a relationship with her again, not as, as, a, as a, a romantic relationship, but one as co-parenting the boys. You know, I was raising them. I had them six days a week and she had them one night a week. And so with that, it was then to build a relationship because she and I never bagged each other. And one of my sons, when he was about 18, going out the door, going to school, turned around and said to me, oh, we're lucky to have you. And I went, what's going on? Where'd this come from? Because it blew me away. And he yeah. said, well, you know, you don't, you know, we've got two houses to go to. We can go to mum's, we can go here, and neither of you bag each other. And I went, well, what about all your mates? And they, I said, their parents are married. And he said, yeah, but... You notice every time you come home from, because uh, I'd go to the gym, at, working from home, I'd go to the gym, be home when they came home from school. There's 15 kids in the house. They want to be here. They don't want to be at their own homes. And yeah. I went, oh. So I realised that that was the first thing. And to get rid of the angst, and the best way I could do that was to stop looking at her as what she was virtually telling me by divorcing me and saying I'm not good enough to be a provider and all the rest of it. But what did she bring into the marriage? Now, I've got three boys, as I said, I love and respect. I wouldn't have had those without that union with her. So I can love her for that without being in love with her. And once I started to understand that, that was the beginning of it. But um, my boys, because I was so, I was, I put boundaries in place. I was pretty, it's a very tough taskmaster. I didn't have to have lie detection. And they would come and dob themselves in when they were doing stuff. They go, oh, I just did this or I just did that or I think you better hear about this because I've been uh, going out with um, one of my best mate's uh, daughters and you told me what they've been getting up to and I went, hmm, okay, I better have a a chat with my best mate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, very good. Um, Surely they couldn't be. That's the the boundaries. By putting the right boundaries in, they felt safe enough. They felt that that was, they could do that. Yeah. And know that 
there'd be a, a discussion. They wouldn't be put down. They wouldn't be given a hard time. We'd be talked about it and everything else. And I'd make sure that, um, you know, there were no arguments with the mate either. Yeah, and awesome. So as his cool response was, I, he said, I thought something was going on, but I'm uh, glad it was uh, uh, that particular son and one of the other kids to hang around. Yeah. And I went, good. yeah, okay. <laughs> it's good uh you create an environment where people want to be at your place and then also uh, that respect mm. that people are happy that um, others are spending time with your children as well. That's awesome. That's um, so I know part of this passion for, for like even that, what you'd explain mm. there around your relationship comes from your own experience when you were growing up. So can you tell everyone listening and, and watching like a little bit about that experience and how that really um, helped shape Mm. who you are and, yeah. and, and the work that you're so passionate about. Yeah, well, if anybody's, first of all, thinking that I've got some magical power that I've, uh, you know, uh, this has been part of me since birth or whatever. No, I was pretty much a loner growing up as a kid. My father died when I was three, so I had no male role models except for one of my uncles. And uh, you know, I never really got on with him very much. And, in fact, when I got engaged the first time at our engagement party, he told my fiance that she could do better than me. So that's oh. what I grew up with. Wow. So, and I, you know, I spent most of my time with, uh, I had pet, pets like cats and dogs. So I spent most of my time with them or playing in the yard on my own. So pretty much a bit of a, a nerd. When I played soccer um, on weekends, uh, I, I was passing the ball to the same kids that used to bully me at school. Yeah, wow. And so, you know, so I hated school. So I really was bad at reading people. And, you know, one relationship after another, when I met my uh, first uh, wife, uh, we got together. And um, at the same time, I just left Sydney and gone to Newcastle, where in Sydney, I was uh, just finished my apprenticeship with the old PMG, which was Telstra today, Telecom before that, PMG before that, Postmaster General. So telecommunications and the post office together. And I came from Sydney to Newcastle um, uh, at the age of 23 put in charge of everybody that um, were older than me. But the reason I got that uh, role was nobody else in Sydney wanted. They all thought it was a dead end job. And so the boss I had said, Alan, it's got to be a good experience for you, go. So I took it on. Within uh, the following uh, year, year and a half, we expanded and we took on the data services cell. I was there for about, going to be there for five months. And I put in a permanent transfer uh, after two months. The old boss came to me and said, um, well, I've been on long service leave. The guys seem to like you. You've told me that you're staying. Do you mind working for me? And I said, no, I don't mind that. And he said, well, as I said, the guys really like you. He said, I'm going to carry out the rest of my sick leave and everything else. He said, I'll be gone for another year. And taking wow. his long service leave and everything. And uh, so I was acting for another year. That then led, when the position came up, I won it because everybody in Sydney who then saw it wanted to apply for it as well. But the guys were pretty cool. One of the guys, uh, Jock Pearl, rang me up and said, we hear that you've applied for the, court, uh, the position as well. And I went, yeah, of course, I've been here for a year and a half. And he said, well, oh, we'll cancel. They all pulled out. So I walked into the position. Oh, wow. How cool and, is that? Uh, it, was, it was unbelievable. So from that point, that led me on to then, um, uh, well, I joined the surf club in my mid-30s. And uh, at that point, became a surf lifesaver. They talked to me into being a patrol captain, and I found out why. They gave me everybody that nobody wanted as a patrol. <laughs> Turned that into the patrol of the year. 
And that's because I've always focused on the people and my job in telecom was, you know, in the data services, so was to really look after our clients, but do it in a way that telecom was looked after as well. And the staff, well, staff worked their tails off. They worked really hard. They, uh, we had the highest performance in Australia in our particular cell. And at the same time, when I finally took redundancy in the early 90s, half my staff wanted to resign and come with me. So I proved that you can have high performance, your customers can love you, and your staff can love you as well. And so that's where I, in that, that was in that role in the surf club where I really learned uh, leadership because they taught me to be the patrol captain, then from there into being the club captain, and then uh, with some issues with one of the you know, senior um, examiners at the time when I first took the club captain's job on. So he and I got together, we sorted that out. He became my advocate. And next thing you know, I'm on the zone looking after three beaches. So again, yeah. from a young kid, no experience, then going into that role where I'm same age as everybody else, but no experience in the surf club, but now in charge. So I've always been in the deep end. Yeah. So as a youngster and still with that passion to look mm. after the people, whether they were clients or, or people mm. um, in your team, how did you manage to create a good experience for, for that many people um, with, at the time, the limited skills that you had? Well, again, it was always focusing on the other person. If I had the skills I've got today, that focus would have been, oh, it would have been precise. It would have been so much on point. So a lot of it was trial and error. Uh, some of the clients, if I walked in and the client was, um, you know, angry and, you know, going on another body technician coming in, you know, nobody's fixed the problem before. I, I learned to, I, I'm an emotional person, so I always responded. And I found out that it was a good way to respond. So if somebody, you know, went off, I'd go off quickly and then say, okay, well, I'm the one who's going to fix it, so let's work together. So I, it's like a dance, you know. The person pushes, you push back. Then when they realise that you're not going to back down, then you just take them where you need to take them. And those clients ended up loving me. They were the, my strongest advocates because I made that connection with them. But in language, they say, if somebody's angry and you go, oh, it's okay, it's okay, you know, don't worry, they're going to take your head off because you're telling them their attitude, whatever they're feeling, you've negated the whole thing. It means nothing because, oh, this is the way you should be like me. Yeah. yeah, you're going to be on the end of the if you're not lucky, if you're unlucky. So it's a case of how do I match them to say, yes, it's okay to be angry because you've just upset me as well, but hey, hey, now let's look at a solution. And that's what I've been doing all the way through. I was doing NLP skills when I wasn't doing, hadn't been taught any NLP. Yeah, exactly right. And it's interesting because your natural way of showing up, you were attracting other people that that was their natural way and that's what you created the best uh, connection with if you can then show up for everyone and know how to do that then you can create a great connection with anyone mm. uh, amazing what you describe there though is when they're coming like this and that's when boundaries come into it right that's it. like what you were talking mm. before is being able to create those boundaries whether it's with your children or in a professional relationship or any relationship knowing the right boundary for the right time that's it depending mm. on how that person shows up powerful mm. And quite often it's just a matter of recognising where their energies are and then matching their energies and then going, right, well, I've not I've acknowledged how you're feeling, but I don't want to be there in that way. How about we move to here? See, people keep forgetting there's three levels of empathy. 
you'll have your cognitive empathy. I can see you're in pain. Now, a torturer needs that, a bully needs that. If they haven't got that skill, they don't know where they get, you know, how do they get their jollies? They've got to be able to see you're in pain. So that's the first level that we all have. We need to be able to recognize someone's pain. The second one is the emotional empathy, where we feel somebody's uh, pain and we go, and we see it on Facebook and other places every day. In the news, somebody's upset, everybody takes sides very quickly. They used to say that a problem halved, sorry, a problem shared was a problem halved. No, a problem shared but not acted upon is a problem, problem multiplied because now you've got everybody and they're all whinging about it and building it up. A problem that is acted upon, that's shared with somebody and then acted upon, that's a problem that's halved. Because the second, the third level of empathy, the first one, as I said, cognitive, second one, emotional, I feel your pain, but we don't want to feel the other person's pain. And so it's all about us. We want to get out of that pain. So we're telling what they should do and everything else. No, hold that space for them. Let them tell you what they're feeling and then go to the third level. I can feel your, I see your pain. I can feel your pain. Now what can we do to fix it? And this is where men went wrong. We're really good at the compassionate empathy. Woman comes up and tells us, you know, and starts talking to us, and we jump in and try and fix it. Correct. If we had just taken that moment to acknowledge it, their feelings and everything else, and go, right, I understand that really feels really, yeah, I can see how that's upsetting you, and then ask a question. Do you want me to just uh, listen, or do you want me to fix this? Yeah. So then you can transition from the emotional empathy into the compassionate empathy, and the woman, if, you, if she says, yes, I want you to fix it, there could be two reasons. One, you screwed up in the first place and she wants you to put it right. Number two is she recognises you are the fixer and you can fix some other problem for her. And the other reason, if she just needs you to listen, she just needs an ear to be spoken to. She's already told you it's not to do with you, but if you love that person, you just sit there and hold their space. Listen to them. Yeah. And, and you're you wondering know, how, how, how much affection you're going to get from them after that. Yeah. I was going to say, if you don't, then mm. they'll find somewhere else to that's it be, to be heard, mm. someone who will yeah. listen, uh, someone who's not jumping in to fix it. Um, it's a male thing. I think it's a it's a partner mm. thing. There's yeah. there's there's like you know plenty of uh, wives who have a tendency towards masculine energy and and can have mm. that same pattern. So it's about it's finding that balance, right? About like again knowing mm. how the other person shows up. I I, I completely agree around that like it's actually okay we can see how you are allowing them that space to actually talk about it which is to me is the part that's missing so much in so many areas part of what we're doing here now is giving like people an opportunity to for you to talk and for others to listen a platform and then then there's options now one of the really awesome things that you do amongst the many is this uh, campfire project you've got, mm. which is a space for exactly that. So mm. can you tell us about the campfire project? And um, mm. and then, yeah, I'll, I'll, I've got a few more questions around that too. So Okay. Well, where it started from, first of all, I realised that a lot of men were getting angry. They When I asked, you know, we're doing in my business, I ask a lot of the guys, well, what's some of the things that are troubling you, et cetera? What's some of your feelings? A lot of them were telling me that I were confused. And I said, well, confused with what? They said, well, We'd always, you know, especially baby boomers and the Gen X, we were told to, you know, provide to the fa for the family. So here we are, we're out there, we're paying the bills, we're you know, bringing money in, we're the providers, but now we're being told we're emotionally disconnected, we're, we're physically absent all the time, we're always out at work. So and the guys were going, I can't be in two places at once, what exactly do, do I need to be doing? Then in the workplace, 
the, you know, the way we used to be able to talk to other men and throw things out and get over it really quickly, it's not the way it works when you've got a mixed um, no, gender within the organisation. We have to start, start changing the way we're speaking. Now, with political correctness, there's so much confusion. I've got up and given a speech to people, and while I've, I've been trying to think of the right fa- phrase, thinking, who am I going to upset with the phrase? Yeah. That gives, and that causes frustration. So these men were also frustrated in the workplace. Now, when men are frustrated, that can lead to anger and then can also lead to physical um, actions, so like domestic violence. And I thought, right, we don't fix domestic violence by beating up the, 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 the perpetrators. We understand why and we educate them, so give them an opportunity. So I thought, right, the Campfire Project was all about my past experience in my own spiritual journey, bringing boys into manhood, but then once you bring them into manhood, how do you help them to become better men? Love because the thing is, the more that we can help men to become better men, the recipients of that are their partners, their children, and their community. So everything's connected. We don't just help men to become better for the sake of them being better. There's always a, 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 a connection to everybody else. So in that, it was a safe place for the men to be able to come in, to tell their stories, where it's a closed group. It was open, I've had women in there from day one, so it was open to anybody. I don't care about gender. I don't care about culture. I don't care about religion or anything else. There's only one requirement, and that is that you're respectful to everybody in there. If you don't agree with somebody, ask them why they believe the way they, they believe. Don't uh, condemn it or anything else. Be that open-minded skeptic and ask the questions to understand. In that conversation, they'll either change their mind, you'll change your mind, or you'll come to an agreement, or you'll just agree to um, disagree, but doing it with respect. So I started interviewing the men one-on-one, and they were telling horrific stories. Then I brought the men into panel discussions. We had a few in the group who had done their one-on-ones because the thing is you have to do a one-on-one first to get your credibility so people know who you are. Then you come into the uh, panel discussions. We talked about masculinity, femininity, pornography. We covered all these different uh, subjects. At that point, that's when the women in the group started sending me personal messages going, never heard men talk this way. The conversations are so deep and we love it. Can we be part of it? So I... I was waiting for the women to put their hands up. So I then started interviewing the women one-on-one, then brought them into the panel discussions. Now, we've had over 270-something one-on-one conversations. We've had over 140 uh, panel discussions, and not once has anybody been rude to anybody else. So from day one, no bigotry, no sexism, no racism. doesn't exist in there. So it proves that through education and attitude, all of those other things get fixed. And it was under the hashtag of we together. Now, Me Too, when it came out, was absolutely necessary because of the violence against women. That need to be highlighted and we need to take action. But that doesn't solve the long-term problem. It only fixes the immediate symptoms that we had. Then we had Men Too start. That was in 2003. Then we had Men Too in 2018. And it was all then, that came about because a lot of abuse that was going on from the other side, where some people were making false accusations and things like that. So now you've got two tribes and they're looking at each other as the problem. Nothing gets solved under that. Yep. When you stand shoulder to shoulder looking at the problem together, there's no egos, there's no condemning anybody about not being good enough, but shoulder to shoulder we work on the problem. So we've gone to working on the problem to looking at each other as the problem. So getting away from that and going on to the problem. So that's what's been happening in the Campfire Project 
I've got uh, both men and women in there running one-on-ones and panel discussions. So my job as a leader is to get out of the way, make myself redundant and get everybody else up to do what I'm doing so I can go and do other things. The oldest person we've interviewed is 99 years old, one of the men, and the youngest person to interview anybody was uh, one of the guys came in. He interviewed his father, first of all, who he, had, who he was in his 60s, who he hadn't really had much to do with because of you know, issues when they were growing up. His, grandfather, his father hadn't seen his grandson, who's nine years old, more than four times in his life until recently, and not once where he was old enough to have a conversation with him until recently. And that uh, young fellow, Oscar, at the, the age of nine years old, he wanted to interview his father. So yeah. he did and came up with his own questions. And one of them was a killer. Oh, they're all brilliant. But this one, I just looked at his father while he was on this Facebook Live while his son did it. And it was, why is it, Dad, you can give to everybody else, but you find it so hard to receive yourself? This kid at the age of nine, because of the relationship he's got with his father and the the nurturing and, the, as I said, the the gardening work that um, Scott's doing with his son, he's he's a nine-year-old who's many years before his time. Oh, and it just shows yeah. the potential that every boy and every girl can be at that point. Oh, man, i got tingles yeah. through so much of that, Alan. So magic. Uh, the two that really sort of grabbed me, that last one at the end, absolutely. Uh, giving them those life skills so that they can ask those questions at that age. Wow. Mm. Powerful. Mm. Uh, we are standing side by side. Mm. To me, that's one of the things that you described with the, the two mm. movements you talked about, but it's happening all over the place. It's like mm. everyone's got an idea and, and like just firing Makes things it. off. And mm. it's like, no, as you described, ask a question and understand why they're coming mm. from that perspective. Yeah. Don't so spew we, out your beliefs to try and convince them that it should be another way. Yeah. So we're taking the ego out of things because, well, if we see it, we've got politicians today that, you know, we just look at and we can't believe them. We've got sporting stars and everything else. There's a lack of leadership. There's a lack of um, uh, the um, male role models out there for people. So we've got the sporting clubs pushing their sporting stars, putting them on a pedestal and everything else, making them all feel like they've got to be the man. So they're in competition with everybody else. They're not giving them the support. And then when these boys go and do something wrong because they haven't had the right guidance, the club then admonishes them and say that they've done the wrong thing. Take the responsibility. You're the club in charge. Now, if you're going to put these kids on a pedestal, guide them so that they can, instead of becoming the man, they can work to becoming a man. And when you've got a whole, think about it, if you're trying to be the man, you're in competition with everybody else. And this is when there's going to be, uh, people don't have the maturity, they're going to be cheating and everything else. But when you're trying to be the best version of yourself by being a man, who do you want else around you? Other men and women who are trying to be the best versions of themselves as well. 100%. Then you've got a community. Otherwise, you've got a, a competition, and this is where all our problems are coming from. You know, just change the attitude and then become a part of a community. Be the best version of yourself and, and part of that for the guys. And that, we've just got to learn to be vulnerable as well because in vulnerability, that's where we really show our strength. Yeah. Like you mentioned about the sporting environment, to me, they are spending a lot of time and energy like trying to make a difference in that space, mm. having been – uh, having had an experience in that space briefly last year, it's only scratching the surface and it's this mm. this side of it, right? It's the emotional side of it. It's the actually being able to give them the skills to, to as you said, stand side by side, mm. 
like, man, this sounds like a conversation we have to have at, at another time, Alan, because I think we're, we're on the same page with so many of those those parts. So I want to I want to go back to to what you talked about there when when you were growing up. So how did those disconnects in those relationships, like your, your dad wasn't there, like how did that go? Like obviously your mum would have been going through her own trauma mm. through all of that. How did that play out for you in terms of of the the disconnect from like a whole family environment, not just from that male uh, yeah. father figure? See, my mother took on the role of being the provider and everything because you know, I got my carpentry skills from her. I got my work ethics from her as well. Really strong woman. And, in fact, uh, I looked up to her at a point. One day I was going to go out on my push bike for a, run, a ride, and she says, no, you can't go. And as I took off, it was a clear sky. Within 10 minutes it was black and it was pouring. I even thought that she had a direct line to God. <laughs> but, but, but she was such a, a really strong person. But at the same time, uh, in that strength, she was disconnected because she was trying so hard to raise both me and, um, and my sister. So when um, I would have had a, a much older sister who would have been 10 years older, but she died when she was 22 months from meningitis. And then I have a, one other sister who's um, two and a half years older than me. So really growing up, my older sister and or my sister and I, uh, one Christine who's still alive, we didn't really connect. And it wasn't until, I don't know why, we're on a conversation one day, I was 38, I was driving back to my property that I was living on away from Newcastle and we got into the conversation. I just told her then that I'd separated from my uh, first wife and uh, as we were chatting and everything else and I remember technology just as I get to the boundary where the phone's about to cut out she says to me oh finally I think I've got a brother and then the phone cut out <laughs> and so and that seemed to be the fact all the way through every time I started to get a connection with her in the past something happened and got broken wow so we were like two kids that were grown up in the same place. She didn't realise a lot of the, because my mother was, um, you, know, you know, doing it tough, being a, on her own and being a pensioner. The end result was on a war winner's pension, my sister was getting hand-me-down clothes. And my sister just recently, you know, I'm 69 and she's in her early 70s, was telling me about how all of her clothes were hand-me-down. So they were given from other people. And I went, well, guess who wore your, wore your school blazers after you? me whole new and appreciation she, for her right yeah and so she didn't even realize what lucky i didn't get her skirts <laughs> but, but my short shorts they were homemade and they looked like they were homemade my mother was a good sewer and so i got that bullying from school as well and so i hated school in fact i didn't feel like i belonged at all i felt that my sister wasn't connected to me i didn't belong in the in the family i was bull being bullied at school i hated it so I was about nine years old. I climbed into my mother's pill cupboard and started taking some pills. I thought, I'm out of here. What, what age was that? Yeah, I was starting to commit suicide by taking her pills out of her medicine what, cupboard. What, what age was that, sorry? About nine years old. Oh, geez. And while I was doing it, I just had this, I'm thinking to myself, they're going to be happy when I'm gone. And all of a sudden, that's when the anger kicked in. And I went, why am I making them happy? And that's when I stopped. Oh, wow. And so... My attitude to life, this way made me even more separated from people because it was anger that kept me alive. So it was appropriate. It was necessary. I wouldn't be around mm -hmm. if it hadn't been for the anger. But what it actually told me on the way was that 
use the anger appropriately. Every emotion we have, there's nothing wrong with any emotion we have. It's how we use it. If somebody went to attack my family, you can bet your life I'm going to get angry. I'm not going to turn the other cheek. So there's an appropriateness for it. But to be angry at somebody just because my day is going bad, that's inappropriate. So knowing how to use at the right time. But that anger separated me more from other people. But it was the thing that made me move forward, but also made me an observer of other people. And I think a lot of the stuff that I started doing intuitively came from that understanding and then later on in life realised that that's what people were teaching, how to do how to you know, read people, how to do different things. But it was the anger that guided me through and, and kept me here to do that. Oh, man, I can totally relate to that, particularly being the observer, like as, mm. a, as a shy kid sitting there and just watching. And, and I don't know if you had the same experience, but but sitting there going, can't the rest of you see what's going on here? Like mm. just, just like mm. – and so you described awareness of another nine-year-old, but that's incredible awareness for, mm. for a nine-year-old to go through that. That's uh, amazing. So what- my story is nothing compared to a lot of people. That's what I realised, that we all have our story. Yeah. Um, and it's our story and that's why it's important. But then also with, with the Campfire Project and even before that, listening to other people's stories, I realised that to be able to sit there and hold somebody else's space while they share their story and do it in a way in which they're not just whinging about things but they're, you know, they're talking through things, that is a gift to be actually receive that. When somebody asks me to sit and listen to their story, I see that as a gift. Thank you very much for asking me to do it. It's a 100%, privilege. 100%. Um, I would add, Alan, you do yourself a disservice every time you say you, you unfavorably compare your story to someone else's or favorably because mm. everyone has their own journey and they've mm. built up different skills to deal with it. So, one person's version of you may look at it and go, oh, that was way worse, but their journey may have allowed them to have resilience to cope with That's whatever right. they went through at a far higher yeah. level than what yeah. you did. So no matter what people – like if people are listening to – like, I think this is really important. If people are listening to other people's stories and going, oh, what have I got to complain about, you dismiss your own pain and you don't get an opportunity to express it. So like – Now, I think it's not a matter of uh, – not um, complain. It's a case of yeah, don't complain, but do express. Yeah, absolutely. But do it in the right environment with the right people. That was yeah. one of the things I learned along the way was, you know, if I needed to or if you know, I had something and I needed to say it, then have the right people around me. You know? Yeah, yeah. One of the first times I was out bush, I was sitting around the campfire with a whole group of Aboriginals and one of the young fellas came in, 14 years old. I hadn't realised at the time he'd been through his rite of passage. In those days, I was still a boy at the age of getting on to 50. I hadn't been through mine at that point. And uh, he um, was talking about the pain he was having in his in his leg and, you know, he'd been crying and other things. And I watched these men with total compassion, listening to him, talking to him and everything else. And that's when I – and these men seemed to be so tall and so strong. By taking that uh, softer approach and just giving him that safe space to be able to uh, share his story. That, as I said, I'm a, an observer. I'm a, I am a teacher, yes, a part-time teacher, but I'm a full-time learner and I will be yeah. till the day I die. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's that's the thing that you just talked about, a safe space to be able to talk about what's going on. To me, like that's just the most powerful thing that we can all do. 
is mm. to find that sp- safe space and talk about those things that we haven't talked about to anyone ever before. Mm. This, that's where the healing starts. I, what you said there before about your mum, she was she became disconnected from herself because she was having to be like the the mum, the, the, the everything. And then you describe so what played out for you is you you and your sister disconnected from yourselves, like who you were as each other, and then disconnected as siblings. And it's like that disconnect. So actually the work that you do, the work that I do, helping people to connect with who they are. So this is not just so you can learn other people, but so you can learn yourself because when you know yourself, then you can go out, start learning about other people. And only when you are connected to self, can you connect with others in the way that you're describing. That's it. As I say, you can't light someone else's path without lighting your own. And that's so true. Yeah, absolutely. Connection is important, but yeah. When it comes to coaching, I always say make sure you're working through your own stuff before you, before you try and work on help somebody else who's working through something similar. So I've always got to be that point in in front. It's like when I'm training people yeah. how to read people, they go, well, when do I start teaching other people? I go, when you fully understand that bit, you may have these bits set to learn, but when you fully understand that, then teach it because in the teaching process, you're giving to them as well, but you're also anchoring that you know your stuff. You don't know how good you are at anything until you teach others. So you have an obligation to teach other people as I'm teaching you. So make sure that you understand it before you show it to somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. And you learn learn through our own stuff. Yes, and you learn so much from, Mm. from being the teacher as well, right? That's it. Well, I can't teach, as I say, you know, people come to me, I say, I'm going to learn you. I heard that from one of the elders out bush, uh, but many, many years before, about 1968, no, 60, sorry, 1969 and 1970, I had a, a, an instructor down in Sydney, because when I first started my career, who used to walk in and uh, Jimmy Pearson, he used to look at everybody and go, what am I going to learn you today? And we just thought he was just being funny, but then years later, I understood what he meant because mm. he was learning from us. Because if you can't learn from the person you're teaching, how can you teach them to the best of your ability? So that Love taught it. me about le- needing to read people to understand them so I can tune my transmitter into their receiver. Fantastic. Alan, I can safely say that for me, that was the fastest hour that there's ever been. Uh, I feel like I could keep asking you questions for hours and hours, uh, but maybe that will give people an opportunity to come and check out what you do and find out more. Um, we'll drop those details for the program um, in the comments for the for the post, uh, for this um, chat. Um, Nate, thank you so much for sharing so openly, uh, for reading me so in depth <laughs> and giving people an opportunity to uh, see the magic of your work. Really cool. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. And as you've noticed, I can talk all day as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to jump in a few times and then, and then wait because, uh, yeah, very good. That was awesome. Cheers, Alan. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember 
so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.